Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Merry Christmas, everybody. It just dawned on me this morning. I may not have a chance to, to do that from this stage, but... Um, except for this morning. So Merry Christmas. It's coming. Um, For us as a family, there's a number of things that we love about this time of year, but one of them is our church family. It's our volunteers. It's our amazing pastor and his wife and their leadership. Um, It's the band rocking it out every Sunday, bringing their best. Um, It's our Christmas Eve service. If you haven't been to it, you need to come. It's a part of our routine. Um, and uh, we just have planned these things so that you will encounter the living God. And uh, we, we expect that that will happen in a fresh way even this season. For us, uh, we also, um, we're also still uh, kind of determining like, what that moment is when it comes to uh, when you become a true Alaskan. And so I've been on the search. I've been talking to people about it. Um, true Alaskans will tell you it's 30 years. We all disagree with that, right? Because most of us have not been here for 30 years, and there's more of us than there are of them. That's all I'm saying. Uh, some people have told me it's like, like seven years. That doesn't seem long enough to me. I feel like it's 10, but uh, somebody told me last night at a party that uh, it's if you weather your first winter well. Um, so by that definition, uh, for us, Alaska is now Christmas time, right? Um, I grew up in California, and I had childhood trauma because we never had snow at Christmas time. This year, all of my prayers have been answered. I hope you're enjoying the snow. It is definitely my fault. Wow. A um, couple other things, couple other things about Christmas uh, it kind of got, like, it gets into your psyche. Um, for Alaska, for us, it is uh, moose. Like, we have moose walk through our neighborhood at Christmas time. Um, so when we talk about Christmas, we're talking about moose in our yard, and uh, it exposed itself last night to me in a dream, so I thought I would share my dream. Are you ready for this? So there I am sleeping, and uh, our neighbors, uh, like true story, right, our neighbors have this floodlight, a motion sensor light that comes on, and, uh, and, and more than once we've had moose walk by it, and, and of course it's always dark, so it just, boom, the lights come on. And we see these gigantic legs walk past our downstairs windows. It's an interesting Christmassy experience for us up here in Alaska. So there I was in my dream, in my room, and I was thinking about Christmas. And everything was going well. And then in my dream, this moose walks in to my bedroom. I know. And it turns on me, and it decides that it's going to come after my wife and I. I want you to know in that moment, my wife has never been safer. Man, I, I pulled off the gloves, and I went toe-to-toe with this guy. And, um, and apparently, um, I actually physically did this because I woke up this morning, and Shannon's like, uh, I think you had a nightmare last night. And I said, oh, no, no, that was no nightmare. I want you to know you have never been more safe than you were in that moment. Uh, so, hey, this whole, this whole experience up here gets in you. It's part of the Christmas season. And we've been talking about coming home for Christmas. 
And we've been talking about it um, really from two aspects. We'll get into the third today. But we started the series talking about wholeness. There's nothing, um, nothing like coming home to experience who it is that you really are as a person. And that God wants us to be honest with him. He wants us to be transparent. And he wants to renew us. He wants to invite us home. He wants to invite us into a place of wholeness so we can truly be who we really are. Last week, Pastor Chris did a great job talking about belonging a little bit and the fact that when we come home, it is a space where we can belong. We talked about the prodigal son and, and that idea that God is always calling us to himself because we belong, because we're his children. And so this is kind of where we've been. Today, we break into the concept of forgiveness. I can't think of a better idea when it comes to, to coming home for the holidays, to come into a family environment where real forgiveness is extended, it's granted, and we can have real relationship because nothing comes between us. But I have to confess at the beginning of this message that as I began to study the idea of forgiveness, I realized that really I was at a beginning point. And even though something, it's something I've preached on, it's something we've talked about as a church, but it comes to the idea of forgiveness, this time around, as I begin to dig deep, I begin to ask a different set of questions. Has that ever happened to you? When I got into the passage, and, and this is often how it happens for me, I'll start to ask different questions based upon the circumstances I feel like I'm facing or we're facing um, as a culture. In this particular case, I begin to ask the question, so what does our society see when they hear us talk about the forgiveness of God? What is it that they wonder about? What is the questions that they are asking? And how would I answer those questions? I just confess, it began to take my study in a direction I never intended it to go. And I feel like this morning what I'm going to do is kind of just regurgitate some of the things that I feel like I was able to sink my teeth into, some of the things that I learned that will relate to answering the question, what does our society think about the concept of forgiveness? And I want to relate it to some specific passages that are actually part of the gospel story, um, the Christmas story, and beyond, and I'm hoping it'll be a benefit for you, but it won't be a sermon. Uh, what I really felt like needed to happen this morning is for us to just go deep and peel back the layers of forgiveness as if it was a present. And look a little deeper and just do some good old-fashioned teaching on it. Ask some questions that maybe you haven't asked in a while to get a fresh perspective. So I'm hoping that that's where you go with me this morning. Now, when it comes to the idea of forgiveness, it's been said that we are never more like God than when we forgive. And the reality is, if it doesn't take long in the Gospels before you bump into this idea of the forgiveness of God and learn a little bit about the definition or how God leverages forgiveness towards future relationship with his people. In fact, listen to this. This is out of the Gospel of Luke. And of course, Luke is a physician and he's recording everything. And so he doesn't just record the birth of Jesus. He records what? precedes the birth of Jesus, and he's talking about a prophecy, really a song that was sung by the father of John, called John the Baptist, it's Zechariah, and he has some prophecies over who this Messiah is going to be. 
These are words that John, his son, is, are gonna say, is gonna say about Jesus, the Messiah, who has yet to be born. And in this prophecy, listen to the idea of forgiveness presented, and it's fascinating to me. Luke chapter one, verse 77 says, this is gonna be one of the things Messiah does. And John, you're gonna speak it. This is what he's gonna do, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. As evangelicals, we automatically, automatically assume that when we see the word salvation, we're talking about getting to heaven. But that would be an incorrect assumption. The context actually has to force the definition of what's being discussed. And if you were a Jew, you knew what this meant, like us evangelicals often don't understand. This wasn't about getting to heaven. This was about temporal deliverance from the oppressors. Whoever the oppressors were, and throughout history, throughout Israel's history, there had been numerous oppressors. Numerous nations that had stepped in and done violence to the Jews. And there was a reason that that was allowed to take place. You see, what every Jew understood in the Old Testament, if you read your Old Testament, you would understand in Deuteronomy that there was this thing spoken over, this covenant spoken over the nation. And it went something like this. If you obey me, you will be delivered from your enemies. There will be no oppressor. There will be nobody who takes over your vineyards. You will own your own vineyards. If you obey me, but if you disobey me, I will dispossess you from the land. In other words, if you obey me, if you're obedient, if you're spiritually connected to me, if you're walking in my truth, you don't have to worry about the oppressor. I will deliver you from your enemies. But if you turn to the other gods of the other nations, those masters will come in like a flood, and they will own you. So in this prophecy of Messiah, as we encounter forgiveness for the first time, this prophecy about what Messiah is going to do, he's literally saying that he will give his people knowledge of a specific form of deliverance from their foreign oppressor. And here's the catch. How is he going to do it? How is he going to deliver the people? It isn't through war. It isn't through finances. It isn't through chariots and horses. It isn't through marriage arrangements. It isn't through all the mechanisms we would assume for them to have experience victory over the oppressor. Instead, he says, this is how it's going to work. He will offer you forgiveness. He will offer you forgiveness, and that will bring deliverance. There is this spiritual relationship between forgiveness and the experience of blessing in the kingdom of God. He will give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin. That's interesting to me. And when it comes to forgiveness, as I reflect personally on it, I'm very much aware of the fact that unlike other things in my life, when it comes to the teaching on forgiveness, it is something that gets brighter in my life day by day. Now, here's what I mean by that. There are things that I learned that I picked up as a child in Sunday school or wherever, truth about God or truth about the church or truth about me, that over time gets dimmer. Not because it's less important, but because it's so familiar. 
It just doesn't, it's not as riveting as it once was, but not so with forgiveness. Forgiveness has the opposite effect. The more I dwell on it, and frankly, the older I get, the more I realize my need of forgiveness. The brighter forgiveness gets, the more important forgiveness gets. I realize that I can't make it another day apart from the forgiveness of God. And there are things about our lives as Christians that are like that. We realize the grace of God and the mercy of God, and the older we get, the more we see their depth and their profundity. And here we have the forgiveness of God on display in the nation, and it's available to us. Now, as a society, we do value forgiveness. We value it at the relational level. Uh, For instance, uh, in our family, we often, uh, leading into Christmas, into the holiday season, we decide or we determine what movies, what holiday movies we are going to be stepping into together. Which is a difficult thing when you have the age spreads that I do in my home, right? But we somehow manage. Well, ultimately, one of our favorite Christmas time movies, and uh, it really should be your favorite Christmas time movie, is Home Alone. And by Home Alone, I mean the first one, right? What's so interesting about Home Alone is it enunciates forgiveness at the very end. After all is said and done, after everybody comes back together, after repentance is given, I'm so sorry, Kevin, after all of that, in that moment, forgiveness is granted, and it isn't until that moment that we experience the right definition of family. They were living in dysfunction from the beginning, and that is exactly the tension that they wanted to create for us. But peace on earth finally is realized, and it's realized through the mechanism of forgiveness. As a society, we still celebrate that close-knit relational forgiveness, that ability to come together in relationship through forgiveness. But there is a problem, and it's a problem I want to surface a little bit today. And it's the problem of how forgiveness works in society. Not on the relational level, but on the societal level. Maybe another way to say it is, can forgiveness work in society? The truth of the matter is, it's a question people are asking. It's a question people are asking because when it comes to the subject of forgiveness, there's an awful lot of confusion. By confusion, I mean an ingrained ideology that's incorrect. We've really reduced forgiveness down to a very selfish experience, a very psychologically selfish movement, where forgiveness exists for one purpose and one purpose only. I mean, really. And it's that because it's bad for me to hold on to bitterness, I have to forgive you so that I can carry on with my life. Now, on the surface level, there's some truth there. I mean, on the surface level, not even God wants us to hold on to anger or hold on to bitterness. And forgiveness certainly is someplace we need to go in those moments. But what that narrowed down definition does is it removes forgiveness entirely from the act of loving others. And as a result, it's a distorted perspective, a distorted view of forgiveness. And when it comes to our society, when it comes to forgiveness on a societal level, 
we are actually quite cynical about the concept of whether forgiveness can even work for us, and possibly for good reason. This week I was reading a little bit of Martin Luther and his 95 Thesis, 95 statements against the Catholic Church, specifically against the Pope, and the fact that he had made himself wealthy off of the selling of indulgences so that people could escape purgatory and really make it to heaven. And well, the issue that Martin Luther had is the issue that you and I have. It's that one man controlled people's destiny through the mechanism of forgiveness. He alone could offer full and final forgiveness. And Martin Luther's whole goal was to say, this only belongs to God. Man can't grant it. This is, this is a thing that starts and ends with God. We can only come into alignment with the forgiveness of God. But as soon as we try to control it, as soon as we try to own it, we distort it and we manipulate the people around us. And he says, you, O Pope, you, the Catholic Church, have done just such a deed. It's wickedness, and anybody who follows suit is in fact wicked and opposed to the cross. As a result, the church clamped down on Martin Luther. And society has grown more cynical, but more recently in history, I believe we're actually struggling with the concept of forgiveness on a societal level right now. We don't usually use these terms, and I don't probably have the best terms, but I would call it a Maoist wokeism. Not everybody is familiar with Mao Zedong or the revolution, the communist revolution in China, which was a little bit different than the Russian um, revolution, but it was this idea that, that forgiveness needed to be removed from society. Confession, on the other hand, needed to be implemented. So what you could do is they had these struggle sessions, they called them. And in these struggle sessions, they would go against what they called the elite, or they would go against the wealthy, or they would go against the, the scholars, and they would invite students to stand up and ridicule them. They would have sit-downs and stage, stages set up so that they could actually ridicule and shame and rebuke one of their professors or a teacher. And in these sessions, if that person recanted and repented and confessed their sin, then they might be released. But if they didn't, if they didn't, they could even be killed or marginalized altogether in society. It became a powerful tool to shape the culture, this dictatorship that Mao Zedong was interested in implementing. It's similar to the woke model that we see today, where somebody will stand up and say something and then immediately have to repent or confess or change course so that they aren't shamed publicly in the group. And what's interesting is that after they come out and after they say, hey, I'm sorry I said this, there is no forgiveness offered. There is no restoration offered. There's just a deeper hunger for more, to find the next victim, to find the next person who misspeaks. The social justice movement the social justice police need us to stay outraged and angry at each other all the time. If you can get the culture to participate in this and ignore forgiveness, you can take over the culture. It doesn't take long. And our culture right now wonders if forgiveness actually delivers 
or maybe forgiveness is just something we need to do away with altogether. What's interesting to me is when I entered into ministry, it looked a little bit different. Things were framed with some different definitions. Psychology had really entered the church even before I got into ministry. And really the outcome of psychology was to sort of take the the coarse, rough edges of God, Jesus in particular, and refine them so he wasn't so wrathful, wasn't so vengeful. It was to make him a little bit better picture of a human. And as a result, we had a shrunken view of Jesus. Now, it wasn't as though psychology itself was the problem or that psychology somehow um, doesn't have something to offer us or even our theology. It's just that what it did is it said this about Jesus. He's just a little bit too unkind. We need to make him kinder and gentler. Ironically, that's no longer what people are trumpeting. If you miss this, you're not going to know how to speak to your children or the next generation. No longer is psychology, by those definitions, what people are after. What they're really after is this social justice idea. Now, the problem with Jesus is he forgives too soon, too quickly. As a result, he's no longer just. Is he even good? Is there anything good about Jesus? Christians and evangelicals have been labeled as Jesus followers by our own admission. And if Jesus forgives too quickly, you can be sure we are also placed into that category of those who offer and extend forgiveness too quickly without any wisdom. As a matter of fact, here's what people are writing about in the newspapers and talking about on the college campuses across America right now, undercover, what they're saying, and even openly, is that Christians are so quick to forgive that we have become a hotbed for those who are perpetrators and abusers because they know if they come into our circles, they'll immediately be forgiven. And we become subjecting ourselves to more abuse as a result. Meaning, we are completely unwise and actually dangerous to society. You see the reasoning? We're just too quick to forgive. Now, here's what's interesting about that. On the one hand, Jesus seems to prescribe this very kind of forgiveness. Look at this. This is in the Gospel of Mark. And this is what, essentially, Jesus is calling us to. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, what? Forgive. Without qualification. Did you see it? This is unconditional forgiveness. And it begs the question that our society is actually asking, doesn't it? What about the victim? What about the one who has been hurt? What do we do for them? As a matter of fact, people have gone beyond that to say that forgiveness is just another way that the church is silencing the voice of the victim. And in truth, I've seen this take place. In my years of pastoral ministry, I've actually seen this work itself out in the home through spousal abuse. Whereas a result of this view of forgiveness that seems to be suggested here, that just forgive, that's what you got to do, is you just got to forgive, that what actually takes place is we propagate more abuse in the home. I just need to forgive them. I just need to forgive them. I just need to forget. And then you make yourself vulnerable for more abuse. 
And the world looks at this and they say, you guys are idiots. What are you doing? You're unwise. If this is what Jesus is teaching, follow this, then he does not believe in justice and he is unloving to the weak. Now that's not what we believe, but that is the argument that is being made. The question is, is there an adequate response to this? The reality is, is often, if we're not careful, we overplay forgiveness and it actually robs us of the ability to express certain appropriate emotions. For instance, when we encounter injustice in society, in the home, we should be outraged. We should be angry at injustice. For far too long in the world of psychology, we have bought into the idea that there are acceptable emotions and unacceptable emotions. The reality is there are just emotions. That's why God says, be angry, but do not sin. That's why God says, I hate divorce. So God hates things. These are emotions. The question is not what emotion are we experiencing, but where do we go with that emotion? And is there any love attached to our emotion? The reality is if we oversimplify forgiveness, we will actually give ourselves the inability to experience emotions we should, in fact, feel like anger against injustice. The result of this has been that forgiveness has been relegated to a wholly private matter of personal health. And justice is seen as solely punitive in our society. And that is a recipe for tyranny. That is a dangerous society to live in. Well, Luke offers us another aspect to forgiveness that we need to see if we're going to interact with the questions our society has. This is what Luke 17, verse 3 suggests. It says this, in the context of forgiveness, the, the, the concept we're talking about, he says this, be on guard. That sounds completely different than what we just read, doesn't it? This is like the flip side of a coin. His time, this time, we're supposed to be on guard. Be on guard is saying exactly what it seems to suggest. This is a military term. It, it has the idea of being prepared for danger because danger is real. It has the idea of placing boundaries in relationships. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. This is too tame of a word in the English language. The reality is the idea of rebuking here is the idea of calling down the destruction of God on those who are in sin. If you want a picture of what that looks like, go back to the Psalms and read the Psalms of David where he calls down the destruction of God on the enemy. Now here's the interesting thing about that. For years we were told we couldn't think that way or talk that way, but in a social justice culture we can as long as we divorce it from love. But the fact is, God never changed. He never changed his stance toward us. And he says, there is a moment 
There's a moment in our relationships where we are wise to guard ourselves and we are wise to call on God to destroy something so that we can stay safe because God is interested in our safety and the safety of the community and everyone else. In fact, this actually enters love into the relationships in a social justice context because there is the hope of repentance through the rebuke. Are you following with me here? In a context where justice is purely punitive, there is no hope of restoration, let alone reconciliation. There is only the judge. There is only the penalty, but not so in the church. Here, we both maintain a wise boundary around us and at the same time extend the offer of actual forgiveness through what? Repentance. See, there's a way forward back towards reconciliation. Here's the point. Here's what's so important about this verse and the two verses together. There is a very real sense because of the blood of Jesus, because Jesus dealt the final blow to sin and every violent act against everybody else, everything that is wrong and everything that is wicked has been paid for through the blood of Jesus. Because of the cross, there is a very real sense in which you and I are invited into the privilege of extending forgiveness to the perpetrator, to the oppressor, to anybody who we have offended or who has offended us. We can extend that offer immediately, unequivocally and unconditionally, and at the same time, at the same time, we are not unwise as to think that because we have extended forgiveness, all is well relationally. The fact of the matter is, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. And what Luke is talking about here is how reconciliation actually occurs. Forgiveness is offered conditionally if the person repents in this situation. In other words, there are some people that are so unsafe to be around that it's appropriate for me to put up boundaries relationally. But I always hold up hope. I always extend the offer of forgiveness should that individual, whoever that individual is, is able to repent. That may take a moment, it may take years, but there's hope. There is a pathway forward relationally, but there is a way forward that is appropriate. Here's what this means. It is okay to have borders and relationships and forgive people at the same time. This enters love into justice and love into forgiveness and as a result, there is no conflict between extending forgiveness and, at the same time, living out justice in society. And only the Christian faith enunciates that adequately in society. It is our job to get this right, or society will get it wrong. Luke ends by going vertical We've seen horizontal relationships. So what does this mean for our relationship with God? Well, look at where he takes us at the end of the gospel. He said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. Speaking about the cross and what Jesus accomplishes for each one of us on the cross. 
the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. He literally outlines the mission of the disciples, which he later surfaces in Acts chapter 1-8, Luke writing both Luke and Acts. Here it is. You will preach repentance for forgiveness of sins throughout all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is going to be your mission. Now, there's two things that are interesting about this I want you to see. First is the word belief is not found here. But I want you to know for certain when it comes to the gospel, it's just this simple. It's the gospel of belief. John writes about the gospel that saves. And that gospel never mentions the word repent once. The word repent isn't anywhere in the gospel of John. That's because the content of our faith simply demands belief. Do you believe that Jesus can give you eternal life without cost? If you say yes to that, you have that life. And you've passed from death into life. But repentance and forgiveness is the context from which belief often is born. And the way this looks is often like this. When you reach the end of your rope, when you've lived the way you wanted to live and it didn't take you where you thought it would take you, all of a sudden in that moment, you open yourself up to the possibilities. You open yourself up to a new realm and in that moment, belief can often take place. And that's when you connect to God. And it may be for the Jew, it may be that they were the ones here who actually put Jesus, their Messiah, on the cross. For them to believe in Jesus for eternal life, they actually had to change their view of God because their view of God was so corrupt they couldn't see that Jesus was in fact God. Repentance had to be part of that package for them to actually come to the place where they could believe. And when it comes to the Gentile in this passage, well, they had to maybe leave their pagan gods, that they had hope and they believed in those and they realized at some point in their life that in order for me to have a relationship with God, I actually have to walk in step with his truth. And there is only one God, not many gods. And as a result of coming to that conclusion, they believed for salvation. It was the context that allowed them to embrace the content of the gospel. In other words, you have to come to terms with reality if you're going to be in relationship with God. Here's why this is important. God is not interested in sidestepping his justice to extend forgiveness. They work in concert. So here's the question I want to ask. Why don't we forgive? If forgiveness is a pathway forward relationally, both for the, the family unit or the church unit or even society, why aren't we quicker to jump on board? And I think there's probably a number of reasons. I'm just going to identify a few for sake of time, but here's maybe some. One reason we don't forgive is because we don't believe it will change anything. Have you ever been there? I mean, you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you just have given up because you realize, well, this is futile and it's not going to change the situation. Another reason maybe it's hard to forgive is because we just... We believe that the sin that was committed was too great to forgive. That's a common understanding. I remember a story coming to me when I was a child, and it was a story about two individuals in our church, significant leadership 
position individuals in the church. And one had a daughter and one had a son. And uh, they fell in love and they got engaged and then it all fell apart. But when it fell apart, it was so messy and it was so difficult that these two fathers who had actually been best friends for years and couldn't have been more excited that they might actually be relatives someday ended up turning on each other and rejected each other. The problem was they were still in the same church. So every Sunday they would come to church and one would sit on one side of the auditorium and the other would sit on the other side of the auditorium. And when my father and our family showed up, we attended this church for about eight years, I remember Kim actually going to the pastor going, what's going on here? These men are leaders in the church. We should be the best at forgiveness and reconciliation and peace. Why are we allowing this to take place? My dad pursued those two men, and I was there when one of the men was on his deathbed because of cancer, and I saw him look into my dad's eyes with tears and say, thank you for stepping in and for stepping up and for confronting this situation. They were able to not only reconcile, but they were able to become best friends again before he died. Push through. Push through no matter how hard it is. There is a path way forward that both acknowledges boundaries and justice issues as well as the grace and mercy of God. But there's another reason we don't forgive. It's probably very oversimplistic, but it's just simply that we have forgotten what God has done for us. The early church was known for several things, three in particular. They were known for how well they cared for the poor, they were known for desire for spiritual purity, and they were known for forgiveness in society. A society that had lost the terms somewhere in the discussion, in the political polarization, forgiveness was lost, but through Christ, forgiveness emerged in the church, and it became a staple in the Christian life and the Christian experience. And it was because the cross gave Christians permission to release others from the debts that they owed. Jesus set the tone when on the cross, at the hands of the godless, he said, Father, forgive. Father, forgive. And in that moment, he was not ignoring sin. He was dealing the death blow to sin and injustice, and at the same time, opening a pathway forward for reconciliation and peace, a pathway that you and I enjoy. He was opening the door that we could walk through, and for, for the rest of eternity, there is this door that allows us to touch a little bit of heaven, but that door actually is two ways. It's not just a door that we can walk through through a door of extension of his grace to us, but it's a door that he wants to walk through in our direction, even when we are ignoring him. In fact, I want you to see this verse in Revelation. It's profound. It's written to the churches, some of whom were experiencing sinfulness. And yet here is the heart of our Father through Jesus on display. He says this to the church, see, or behold, or look my way. I stand at the door and I knock. It's like you're not looking at me, but I want you to know I am looking at you. I'm knocking in your direction. I want you to hear me. I have something for you. If anyone hears my voice 
and opens the door, I will come into him. I will enter his home and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is saying there is a two-way door. Through forgiveness on the cross, we can open the door to heaven, but he also wants to open the door to our hearts and our lives. He wants to come into our experience. It's at the heart of forgiveness. God wants to extend that. He wants to be in our presence with all of our junk, with all of our mess, with all of our sin, and remind us again that it's been paid for so that he can be where we are. He wants nothing more this Christmas season than to come to your home. Now imagine what would happen if we got this teaching in our homes, in our lives, in our society, and maybe to personalize it as the, the band joins me back on stage, maybe to personalize it, I'll put it in the form of a question. What is it that is keeping you from extending forgiveness? Is there something that's in the way? See, we can extend forgiveness when we look back to the cross. And at the same time, not ignore the justice that is necessary to interact with the world we live in. So what is it? There is a pathway forward. Are you taking the steps in that pathway? And are we modeling forgiveness in our relationships? And in a world that is calling for us to live in a constant state of outrage over injustice, are we getting closer and closer toward the light? of God's forgiveness. Some questions to be asking, here's why it's so important and so critical for us. Whenever we become confused about something like forgiveness, we end up with a shrunken view of God. We end up making God look a little bit more like us and a little bit less like God, and a God that looks a little bit more like us and a little bit less like God is not God at all. And we have got to, to get a vision, to catch a vision of the greatness of our God. And we can do it through forgiveness. And we're about to sing a song here again. A song that brings our attention to not only the greatness of our God, but all that God is able to do in us and through us. How not only does he reconcile us, but he's able to break through the chains. He's able to break us away from our old self so that we can live in a new and a fresh and a living way. But I want you to know this, as we sing this song, all of that, all the great things that we're about to sing come because of the doorway of forgiveness. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.